All right, podcast friends, before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about one of our newest podcasts, Ringer FC. Each week, Chris Ryan, Ryan O'Hanlon, Micah Peters, and various Ringer staff members will be discussing everything happening in the world of soccer from the Premier League to the state of the game in America. Let our soccer experts guide you along ahead of the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Make sure to subscribe and listen to Ringer FC wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey, podcast friends, welcome back to another edition of House of Cards, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This is, my friends, as you know, a food podcast for the hungry people, by the hungry people. I am your humble and hungry host, Joe House. Friends, thank you so much for all of the outstanding belly sourcing. We love the feedback about my trip out to Los Angeles and all of the places that Bill Simmons took me and other assorted ringer pals around. And we had a wonderful time and documented the tour on the Instagram. Thank you so much for the comments and the feedback. Keep it coming. You can continue to email us at houseofcarbsfans at gmail.com. We have today, my people, an outstanding show. Of course, we're going to do some food news with Juliet Littman, who is back from vacation. Two very interesting stories emanating from France, which makes sense because they have great food in France. But right now, we have uh, an incredible guest. We were unbelievably fortunate to have on uh, today's show a best-selling author many times over the founder, host, and obvious star of the super mega podcast hit Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, on his show, Revisionist History, uh, did a half-hour take on how McDonald's broke his heart with the change in their French fry recipe. So I had to have Malcolm on uh, House of Carbs, of course, in this moment where so much of the country has different points of view on so many things. I think this is a topic we can all jump on and get behind. Hey, McDonald's, let's bring back the OG French fries. My friends, let's get in that belly with Malcolm. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to House of Cars. Could could not be happier to be here. So let's uh, tackle it um, in 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 the first place. McDonald's, you broke my heart is yeah. the name of that yeah. uh, particular pod, and I'll let you kind of describe it. Um, but I have a lot of questions. We're going to go right. deep on French fries. Okay, okay. Well, you know, it started because I remember, as I'm sure you remember, how good McDonald's French fries were back in the day when I was a teenager. And I went to McDonald's all the time. I went there because of the fries. And then at a certain point, the fries didn't taste the same. They sucked. I go back there now and they are not, they're not the fries I grew up on. And so I've always been curious about this. What happened? So I decided as I, you know, because in, when you have your own podcast, you can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. I decided I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And the answer is, the short answer is, they changed the way they made them mm-hmm. in 1992. And uh, they went from frying them in beef tallow to frying them in some combination of vegetable oil. And as you dig into this, what you realize is that that is not an inconsequential move, that uh, a French fry, the, it's not like when you're frying an egg where it doesn't really matter what you fry it in. A fried egg's a fried egg. Yeah. A, a French fry is a combination of a potato and some kind of cooking element. And the element is as much a, the thing you fry it in becomes a constituent part of the fry. And when they went from beef tallow, which is the greatest thing that you can fry a French fry in, although some people would say that goose fat is better. There's, I, a, there's a strong argument for goose fat. There's a big uh, push down in, in, in D.C. for duck fat, duck, duck fat, fat fries. Yes, I see that fat. a lot. So, you know, uh, 
if you go back to France in the day when mm. where the French privacy comes from, um, I think that historically they're done in either duck or goose, and each has its own. Um, and then McDonald's and starts out by d- doing a beef tallow mix, and I don't know what else. It's possible that there's some other animal in the mix in the beginning. But um, and you describe at the outset, you know, as as Ray Kroc and his uh, group was was you know imagining. Um, the French fries part of the menu that they experimented. Yes, they did, and they um, there was an enormous thought that went into how to make a French fry properly mm. back in the fifties when fast food is getting started in this country. And and let's also remember it's a it's a crucial part of the story that McDonald's is McDonald's not because of the burger; it's McDonald's because of the fries. Ray Kroc, when he goes to the original fast food place run by the McDonald's brothers in San Bernardino, California in the 50s. He'd give a shit about the burger. I mean, there's right. tons of good burgers. You sure. can't, anyone who has barbecued knows you can't botch the burger, right? You can, but it's hard to do. Yeah. The fries were what blew him away. And he says in his autobiography, the fries would be sacrosanct. In other words, he was attracted to this, to what the McDonald's brothers were doing because they were... They were. They had done. They had figured out the secret of the fry, and he wasn't going to screw it up. And then what happened? He screwed it up. <laughs> twenty years later, he changed the recipe. Or twenty, uh, uh, forty years later. Forty years. He changed the recipe, and that's really. I wanted to get to the bottom of why did he change the recipe, and what are the consequences of of changing the way you make fries for 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 what the, how the fries taste. So before we tackle. Um, that consequences discussion. I want to do a little personal history with you because I think we're about the same age and I want to hear your experience in terms of, I, I know you say so in the podcast that you didn't even have fast food in your life until you were a teenager. Yeah. And, um, you know, that the ability for you to smell out that the, the something had changed pretty early in your your fast food life uh-huh. is kind of interesting to me because I was raised um, on a I mean I wasn't raised on fast food but it was an element it was a treat for my family my parents how in, old were you when you first started going to McDonald's young five four five oh, six I, I oh, mean yeah. oh, you know you because were, it was like a, a treat yeah you were weaned on it yes yeah. exactly but wait can we, we just pause and talk about that for a moment <laughs> that that's really interesting to me that everyone from our generation describes going to McDonald's as a treat it was not a daily thing it wasn't a default option your our parents and my parents didn't because they had their own complicated sort of hippie-esque reasons for hating fast food but you know my peer for our my peers we were taken there as a kind of like a special occasion right right yeah it's so weird that in the space of a generation that change it changes from being this um, and when you go there as a treat, you're fine with the fact that the food is massively unhealthy. That's not an issue because it's not a, you know, because you go home and you eat healthy food, right? Well, and in our era, there wasn't the, you know, neither the science nor the interest nor the, you know, the inclination to um, characterize it as enormously unhealthy. Yeah. It was recognized, you know, it fit in that, that treat silo, which means... Um, there's a probably there could be a milkshake as part of it. You could get an ice cream cone as part of it. Mm-hmm. But a burger and fries was not regarded in the 70s and 80s, at least in my experience growing up. My parents didn't have any particular concern about our, our diet. Now, maybe they knew that we were going to get, you know, mm-hmm. four square uh, and, and a balanced meal that included vegetables at home. But it wasn't, you know, the quite the the. It didn't have this this feeling of of really um, cheating on 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 diet. Um, it wasn't considered was toxic. Up. No, it was not <laughs> yeah. considered toxic. That's but it exactly wasn't. Right. But it was a treat. So, but it was a treat because there were no vegetables. That, that that's probably right. right. You're probably right. So that's right what about distinguishes that. it. It's where your parents back off on the you have to eat your vegetables yes. thing, and we're going to let you indulge. And then you got you finished up with the with that little apple pie thing. That's or 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 a milkshake or, or an ice cream cone. Yeah, hot fudge Sunday from McDonald's. Can't sleep on the hot yeah, fudge Sunday. No, you cannot. Um, but that was, yeah, so I encountered that in, I remember, I, was, I would have been 15 years old when I had my first McDonald's. So you were 15 when you had your first McDonald's, and then the recipe changed within, a, within 10 years. Yeah. Right? But it was gone by now. Although I am a little older than you. I'm, I, I probably got yeah, a couple years. Seven or eight years on you. A couple years. Um, but yeah, no, it's gone by. So there's a little window there 
where they're fantastic. And then they're they're it's just it's it, McDonald's rips it away from me. I mean, mm. this is the this is the the emotional undercurrent of my podcast. It's called McDonald's broke my heart because they did break my heart because I care passionately about fries. Did, did you eat any other fast food? Yes. It? So I moved to D.C. You're from D.C. I yeah. moved to D.C. when I was uh, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And I discovered two things, Popeye's chicken. Oh, my God. You're talking to the right fella. And I also discovered Wendy's. Wendy's is When I was growing up in Canada, I don't feel like there was Wendy's. And Wendy's, the minute I encountered Wendy's, McDonald's ceased to exist to me as, a, as an institution. I, think, I don't think I, I... Wendy's, to my mind, was so much a cut above McDonald's. My mouth is agape. I'm sitting here with mouth open. You can see me with my mouth open. <laughs> I'm so surprised by that. They're really? two different animals altogether. I just thought, Different experiences. I know, but I just thought that Wendy's was on another level. I thought the burger was way better. Okay. Uh, I thought, for example, the bun yeah. was... And I thought that... But, and I thought the fries were better by that point because McDonald's had already thrown away oh. its fries by that point. Um, but I just thought it was a... To my, I thought Wendy's was premium. I thought like McDonald's was entry level. And I get Ma- that. And Wendy's was like a step up. Yeah, in, I get The whole that. experience. I mean, the, the spicy the chicken sandwiches at Wendy's were, were really were, what set it apart. Yes. And that was the thing that fits this premium narrative that you're, yeah, you're describing. Yeah. No, I thought... And I thought... So I kind of... I, I morphed towards... And, I, and, then, and then Popeye's was... I mean, Popeye's is in a whole nother level. Whole nother, I don't know if you, uh, um, I hope you didn't waste your time reading any of the Ringer's top 50 fast food items. I did. Bill Simmons and I uh, had a conversation where we, we, we greatly, we, we took great umbrage at, at the way that list turned out. But um, one of the things, the common elements where I was able to make peace with it was there was a proper regard for the Popeye's fried for chicken. The Popeye's. Yeah. Now, I, because... My remember, I'm coming to D.C. from Canada, and my sense of D.C. is it's a southern. I, I you know, I don't know sure, the South. Sure. So I, to me, Popeyes was about was my first glimpse of like. I mean, it wasn't real southern food, but right. but it was like I never, I didn't, I didn't know from. I'd never been to Louisiana. You probably never had fried chicken, or maybe did they I do fried never, chicken in Canada? I had never had fried chicken. That, that's that's the distinguishing trait, yeah. and that that fried chicken is a southern thing. Now, of course, Popeyes has this particular yeah. New Orleans vibe. Let's do a real quick tangent. What do Canadians eat? Uh, well, we have uh, the premier fast food place in Canada is called Harvey's. Okay, and Harvey's Harvey's makes a hamburger, a beautiful thing. All right. Um, it's a flame broiled burger. It's probably a cut above Burger King in that respect, um, and we. The other big thing we do, of course, is vinegar and mayonnaise on our fries. Oh. People, we don't do ketchup. People are going to give you a hard time about that. Well, yeah. you're, it's Canadian. It's what you it's, do. It's what Because remember, our French fry legacy is coming to us from England via the ah, fish and chips thing. Sure, sure. So English chips is all vinegar. It's not. It's, you, don't, you don't use ketchup with your English chips. Right. And you have a much, the chip, of course, is much larger than a fry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what really, but Harvey's, Harvey's is a, is a creditable fast food franchise. I would put it uh, below Wendy's, but above McDonald's and Burger King. And never jump the border. I've never heard of Harvey's. No, no, it didn't jump. Okay. I mean, um, does did Tim Hortons donuts jump the border? Tim Hortons has jumped the border, and the, the those border. donuts are famous, and, yeah, and, yeah. and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, so that's <clears throat> Harvey's is really. I went to so McDonald's. I would have there would be one McDonald's in the big town uh, near where I grew up, but there would be several Harvey's. Okay, I got um, it. That so, makes. That makes a lot of sense. But Harvey's was a was burger centric. I don't remember the fries attracted me in the same way. The fry thing is is was just that's what McDonald's stood for. Well, and here's the thing. Let's go back to the conversation that we're having. So during my lifetime and yours, it was widely accepted uh, amongst all of my peers and friends and even adults that McDonald's served the very best French fries. Yes, and for me. That has persisted to my thinking today, notwithstanding the fact that I know that the recipe changed. And what I'm curious about is because you were introduced to McDonald's French fries kind of later, not Mm -hmm. as a child, you were able to, it was probably a lot more palpable, a lot more, you know, the experience of your enjoyment of the French fries changed in a way that it it didn't change for me that that way. Because I've been eating the food. Exactly. You got anchored. anchored. That's it. I think maybe that's why... I had such a bad reaction to the switch. And 
you know, for those who haven't heard the show, what I do in the show is I go to the leading food R&D house in the country, a place called Matson, and I had them make, do a taste test, and they made French fries just as McDonald's would, the old-fashioned way, using beef tallow, and then they made a precise replica of the modern fries, and we did a blind taste test. And I have to say, under those circumstances where you are doing it blind and where you are, we were with sensory professionals, they like yeah, to call themselves. Yeah. Um, I aspire is, to that. Is there, there is really, there is, there is it's no contest. I mm. mean, it's like you're eating two completely different foodstuffs. It's phenomenal. In fact, after that, I was like, I cannot, I, I mean, to this day, it blows my mind that McDonald's would do this. So they know better than anyone what they had to give up when they shifted from beef tallow. They were throwing away the franchise. And they must have done taste tests. And they must have said, oh, my God, we're taking something that's an A-, a plus and we're taking it down to a B-. minus, And we're going to go, even though our brand and our livelihood depends on this food item, we're going to throw it away. Like, what was the, this is what's curious for me. What I couldn't figure out was what were the internal conversations inside McDonald's in the early 90s as they contemplated destroying the thing that made them famous? Well, well, having studied it, what do you think they came out with? This is basically a cost-benefit analysis, mm-hmm. right? I think they were. It, there was a time of real hysteria about saturated fat, yeah. and they thought that they thought that fast food would be doomed unless it uh, unless it don the cloak of, you know, good nutrition, even though that's absurd. I mean, it's a French fry. It's never going to be a healthy product. That's right. And also absurd, and this is what I get into in the episode after the French fry episode, it turns out to be false that vegetable oil is healthier for you than beef tallow. That's also wrong. So not only did they destroy the French fry, they gave us something that was worse for us. From a health perspective. So the, everything about it was a mistake. If they had any balls at all, they would turn around and say we were wrong and we're going back to fries the old way. Um, in fact, I, you know, I don't think it's impossible, by the way. The science is now at the stage where the number of people who are still clinging to the notion that saturated fat is the worst thing in the world is steadily dwindling. And the evidence just is not there. Well, it is funny, uh, the things that developed after that moment where they changed. So they were um, ahead of the curve in terms of recognizing the vulnerability of their their products mm-hmm. to, um, you know, a changing palate and a, a perhaps a, an awareness, a growing awareness among their consuming public of, you know, pursuing healthier food items. And it wasn't, you know... Um, uh, program movie like Supersize Me or something that shamed them. Um, it was instead this this um, particularly vocal actor back in the late 80s, early 90s, this gentleman you, you described. Phil Sokoloff. You, you tell his story. This crazy millionaire from Omaha, Nebraska, who basically single-handedly takes on the food industry in the early 90s and shames everyone. I mean, everyone from Kellogg's and their cornflakes uh to Nabisco and Oreo cookies, he take, makes everyone take saturated fat out of their food. Um, it's an ex, it's really an extraordinary moment. Like it's a kind of he's the kind of the Ralph Nader of food. Uh-huh. There's no one else on that level. He's sort of been forgotten now, which is weird because there's you know he's there's probably four or five individual crusaders in recent American history who have managed to change corporate behavior in that way, and he really changes fundamentally the food that. The processed food that Americans eat. Um, I'd never heard of him until the podcast. He was, I mean, I was covering, I was writing for the Washington Post in those years, and I was covering health. And we were aware of this guy, and we were just like, our jaws would drop. He would charge around. This this is a man who bought a Super Bowl ad in 1992. An an individual bought a Super Bowl. One guy who ran a construction business in Omaha bought a Super Bowl ad to basically shame food manufacturers into taking saturated fat out of their food. He's an incredibly important figure in retrospect. And he's the guy who basically he creates a sort of stampede to the exits among food manufacturers uh, from saturated fat. And that's the world we've been living in ever since. Well, and... and you know, with health consequences, as you're going to um, observe in the podcast that follows the French fry podcast. That are, we're probably, I mean, there's two things we now understand. If we were to retrospectively go back and think about 
what is wrong with fast food? Uh, what's wrong with the standard McDonald's meal? Um, in the 90s, we said what's wrong with the standard McDonald's meal is the saturated fat in the fries and, the bur- and cooking the burger. Turns out, and the, and, the, and the beef in the burger. Turns out that's not true. That's not what the problem is. The problem is the sugar in the, in the Coke. Oh. It's the sugar. That's where the, the consensus in the nutritional world is now heading toward, away from fat as the enemy and towards sugar as the enemy. Sure. So if I had to fix anything about McDonald's, I would say bring back the saturated fat in the fries, but just cut the serving size. Right, right, right. Um, cook, give us a tasty burger. And the other thing, and this is a, a crucial little, um, this is a crucial sidebar. When I was, so I was in San Francisco at Matson eating original saturated fat fries. And one of the most striking things about eating them is not only did they blow contemporary fries out of the water, but you're, you're full far more quickly. Uh. That when you cook something in saturated fat, you reach satiation way faster than you do when you cook it in vegetable oil. The, it's the combination of the kind of mouthfeel, the much sort of denser, richer flavor, sure. and the fat itself. Yep. And so you don't need to eat a supersized fries. I, I see. I had a handful of fries, and I was, I was satisfied. And I'm someone who can eat a lot of fries. So, right. Here we go. Uh, so this, we're connecting some dots here because Supersize didn't exist. It did not exist. Jim, until, I'm banging on the table. Jiminy Christmas. Until they, when they screwed up the fries and cooked them in vegetable oil, all of a sudden we needed to eat more because the fries weren't filling us up. Oh. This is, and this is, that's this fatal My heart's error. breaking all over again. I know. This is, I, I mean, I used this example when I was on Simmons' show we were talking about about the NBA, about why why the NBA should play fewer games. Yeah, I just have the games be better. And I said sure. it's like yogurt, no fat yogurt tastes like shit. And what do people do? They eat a lot of it. No, no, no. Eat the full fat yogurt, right. yogurt, and eat less of it. Yeah. So let's have fewer NBA games and let's have them be meaningful. <laughs> why do we have such trouble with this trade off in this country? We think the only thing that matters is volume, mm. and I think. I don't know whether you, I know you watch a lot of basketball. I would be delighted to watch one fewer basketball game a week, provided that the quality of the game increased by 15%. If I could see the equivalent of playoff basketball in February, I would totally give up a game a week. Two games a week I would give up. Well, this is, and I don't want to go off on this tangent, but this is the, um, that particular observation and, 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 line of thinking is why I think um, it would be fine to have HGH as a you know prescribed, medicated. I want the best players to play all of the games. I, want, yeah. I never want it yeah. to be the case that the best players are not playing their, their one or two away games in Los Angeles because they're resting. They, they, it falls on a bad place on their rest schedule. Yeah. Yeah. So but I'm not, not going to go down that tangent. T- but it's that not a, it's not a tangent. But, it's the same notion here, which is that our... Uh, the kind of rules we use to govern our experience of the world are all screwed up. We, we just had this infatuation with more as opposed to this infatuation with better, mm. as opposed to saying to ourselves, what is the best possible fry we can make, right? And once we've made the best possible fry, let's eat it in moderation because it's so damn good we don't have to have, right? This is very much a European notion of you go to France and they cook everything in butter. It tastes fantastic. But if you cook everything in butter... You don't eat yeah. um, a the huge whole loaf of ba- the whole steaming. Loaf. Yeah, yeah. Or I was a, I've just got back. I was on holiday in Europe and I was in, I had a fantastic meal mm. in, um, actually in Frankfurt, Germany. Okay. At this Italian restaurant. And I ordered the risotto. Mm. And got to order the risotto. Got to order And you know what it was? It was so interesting. It was a flat plate. First mm-hmm. of all, not a bowl, yeah. a flat plate with, a layer of risotto on it, just in the center of the plate, that was maybe three quarters of an inch thick. But it was a modest amount of risotto by American standards, but it was insanely rich. And it was the best risotto I've ever had in my life. (laughs) And like, that's where we need to be going, right? Yeah, right. right. That's the food experience that we God knows how much butter they put in that risotto. Sure. But God bless them. Right. It was fantastic. Of course. Right? Yes. But I've gone to Italian restaurants in this city and they, they treat 
They they give you industrial sized portions of risotto. I mean, it's preposterous. Yeah, right. And you don't. I mean, it's it everything that that is compromised and prov- providing um, a, uh, a a size of food. You know, yeah. at that quantity, is is it, it loses all of its character and flavor. You just you know you don't you don't want it. Now look, um, you just touched on something that I'm interested in pursuing with you, which is you are a, a man about town. You are always on the go. I felt very lucky. I happen to be in New York City. We're recording this in New York City. I caught you at one rare moment where we had 30 minutes to, to get into your schedule. How, how often are you eating abroad versus eating at home? Eating outside the home. Yes. Uh, depends. So I spend, when I'm in the city, I eat out or order in yeah. almost all the time. Yeah. So you don't cook. cook. But I do cook. Okay. I, but I... When I, I have a house upstate, and when I'm upstate, ah. I cook almost exclusively. Yeah. So that's how I divide it up. It's I'm too busy here. Yes. And it's, I live in the West Village. I have I have a thousand options within five minutes of my house. It's, it just seems silly to cook upstate. I love cooking, and I cook I cook it all the time. What do you cook when you're upstate? A uh, fair amount of uh, I do a lot of sous vide. Oh, interesting. Uh, so I cook my do sous vide meat. I was going like, to guess that you might do go in a barbecue kind of way, but I that's do not, not own a barbecue. Oh, I would like have to. to introduce you to this. I know, but low my, and slow, brother. I know. I have to. Well, here's what I do. I have a, my brother is a green egg guy. Oh, so you're, you're, he's yeah, you I have know. a built-in resource. But the problem is, here's the problem. My brother is one of those techie cooks, and he, so he says all you need to get is a big green egg, and then he lists like fifty <laughs> other high tech things. And I'm just like, it's too much. But that that's what sous vide sous vide is a te- is a no, out of super the easy, t- super easy. Okay, stick it in the bag, throw it in the water. I mean, yeah, but it, the water temperature matters. How long it's in there matters. Sous vide was invented for like you know the 21 year old guy who doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> um, I cook a lot of. Um, I do. I do. I use a slow cooker a lot. Okay. So I love goat. I'm. I oh, am, so this is not that far away from a from barbecue. No, not that far. I'm a okay. Jamaican, yeah. so I go out and I buy my goat and oh. I slow cook it for like nine or ten oh. hours. And um, how's it seasoned in, 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 with a Jamaican flavor? Or oh, full on Scotch bonnet, oh, bonnet peppers, now and we're talking. curries, and yes, yeah, yeah. I love it. I get up. an invite. I mean, is, is this over <laughs> friends? You know, I'm, I'll I, come I, upstate. I bring in, but people, you know. Uh, if you you know this, that once you move away from somebody with a diverse background, the uh, people's uh, tolerance for heat in their yeah. food falls. Sure, there was a great did you, did you there was a great Twitter meme not long ago on what is the whitest possible statement, and there were <laughs> the two winners were I love them. One winner was um, oh no officer, you why don't you show me your ID. That was that was number two. Oh my! And the number one all-time white statement was, um, uh, "Is this spicy?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, what a shame. Now so I had you were um, in Washington the same time as I was coming up, and and um, at a moment in Washington's food culture when it was uh, diverse, but only. Like outside the city, there was ethnicities and a, and a diversity of culture um, that had not permeated the the local like in town food scene. So there's a huge Ethiopian um, yeah. constituency. Adams, so I was living in Adams Morgan. Oh, so you you got yeah. you got all the diversity. We got a, we had the, the we had Guatem- we had a lot of yep. of South American. Largely, yeah. it seemed Guatemalan and Salvadoran. Salvadoran, huge, like the papusa. Like they yeah. do it at outstanding papusa in the DC area. And uh, lots and lots and lots of so many. There, I was I was along that strip of Columbia Road not long ago, and noticed there are fewer Ethiopian restaurants now than there were. They're almost all there. gone. They yeah. they they've relocated. There's still a tiny little yeah. concentration of they still call it um, Little Ethiopia, but it's it's basically like six or seven places in in one tiny little yeah. area. But there was a place called Mama Aisha's on. Uh, do you know that still place? there? Of course, it's still there. Yeah. I was biking by. I was like, that place had been there for 20 years when I was living in DC in the 80s. Well, they were doing Mediterranean before it was cool. Now it's yeah. cool. I mean, people yeah. recognize the Mediterranean foods as, as healthy, and you know, you can enjoy. A lot of different flavors and textures and ways of going about. I it. my what I, I go to DC a fair amount, and my uh, I find the f- local food scene to be confusing. Sure. And one of the things that's confusing to me is that uh, I don't understand why there aren't good restaurants in Georgetown. Maybe I'm am I wrong about that? But if I feel like nothing interesting is happening on a culinary level, 
like on this side of 22nd Street. It, and, and you understand the basic economics of it. It's because the rents are too high. Is that is that sure? I mean that that's the historical explanation yeah. for that. Um, Georgetown gets like one good restaurant now. That that is changing now because um, Georgetown has been brought to the rude uh, awakening and realization that they have to compete with other portions of the city to bring yeah. you know people with dollars in their pockets, both in terms of retail and in terms of of food. And the city has been on a real come up over the last ten to fifteen years in terms of. Um, mainly food uh, mm-hmm. because of two things, I think, and this is my own pop, you know, economist kind of stuff. A lot, big influx of young people coincident with the end of the George W. Bush um, presidency and the arrival of the Obama presidency mm-hmm. and a move of folks that have been out in the suburbs back to the city, towards the city. A lot of yeah. baby boomers coming back towards coming, the city. And bringing money. Yeah. So a lot more money in the city and yeah. a lot more, a big constituency with the kids of built-in folks willing to try stuff. And so um, a lot of restaurants and restaurateurs um, started doing some innovative uh, kind of food in Washington and having some success and then being able to kind of build off of that. But that's all a, a, like a 10 to 15 year phenomena. When yeah. you were in the city, it was still a steakhouse, you know, power lunch, business lunch was the main thing that you could go do if you wanted to have a nice Yeah, there was meal. K Street. There was a K exactly. Street corridor of that's the power right. lunching. Yep. What always strikes me about... Um, Local food cultures, um, that's interesting. It's the extent to which um, they're kind of, uh, it's like there's family trees. You, it, you know, where you have a vibrant food culture, what you have is the chef came in and trained the three chefs who trained, each trained three more chefs. And you can literally, you can, you can graph it on a family tree and you can see exactly where all your good food comes from. I mean, it's so personal. You know, it's like, it's like the it's like all the guys who who coach with Bill Walsh. It's the same, you know. Bill, you know, without Bill Walsh, God knows what football looks like. Same deal with well, that's very much at play in Washington because in the first place, Washington's still a small city. You know, still less than a million uh, yeah. inhabitants, a million taxpayers, um, and you know, it, it is the case. It's got a small town feel, and then in the sense that um, folks, restaurateurs who have a little bit of experience, are emboldened to go do three or four or five. So there are two or three folks down there. Mike Isabella is one. He's a top chef guy who, who's uh, had some Washington connection and started, I think his fifth restaurant just opened. Um, there's an Italian guy uh, with behind the Fiola chain. That's Chain is the wrong word because the, each of the individual restaurants are, are wonderful. And the, one of the things that has occurred in Washington, the power of those successful restaurants to pay for the best ingredients so you're assured of a great meal at any one of the restaurants because they have the power of the mm-hmm. economic power to bring in the best. Now, again, this is my observation. I don't know whether or not it's, it's true. Um, yeah. I'll have the guys on and ask them. I, you know, the other comment I would make about this that is changing in D.C. is um, I've always thought just super anecdotally that a kind of uh, a sociological, you can make a sociological judgment about the um, the health of a city, when I say health, the kind of uh, the extent to which it is racially integrated, uh, 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 there is some degree of economic um, equality and opportunity by looking at the composition of diners in restaurants. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Atlanta, for example, the fascinating thing about Atlanta's sort of new food world is you walk into those restaurants, you are as likely to see a black diner as a white diner, as an Indian diner, as a. The restaurants are the kind of place where you see true mixing, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you go to Birmingham, which I did a bunch of stuff in Birmingham when I was doing my podcast, you go to the best restaurants in Birmingham, you don't see any black people, huh. right? You see only white people. Yeah. Um, in D.C., when I was back there, back in the 80s, it was the nice restaurants were lily white. It is no longer the case. Right. Now in D.C., you're suddenly seeing the... the through the prism of the restaurant scene, you're seeing what happened to the city ethnically and and economically over the last 25 years. And it's incredibly heartening to me. Yeah. I, well, I mean, the thing, there is a complicating factor. There is a big, you know, gentrification element to it. And, mm-hmm. and there is, um, you know, that that deserves, you know, consideration um, there. In, in terms of the diversity, it's mostly, in my experience, young people, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. more so than kind of the long standing, you know, the, the um, African-American culture in Washington that was, you know, kind of the per- pervading and per- prevailing 
um, you know, cultural direction. I, I had exposure to that in my teens because I went to high school in the city. Um, Which one, where, where did you go to high school? It's called uh, Gonzaga. Oh, you went to Gonzaga? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize you went to Gonzaga. Yeah, one of those boys. You, that's like basketball powerhouse. Yeah, brother. We, we, <laughs> we, we put them out there. Uh, so just to complete the thought, you know, there is still um, a handful of places you can go to that have um, a historical identity in Washington mm-hmm. associated with the African-American culture. Uh, the, Flor- the Florida Avenue the Grill. Grill. I've you been know, there many times. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In proximity to Howard University. That's, yeah. a, that's an institution. And it's part of why I think Ben's Chili Bowl so people in D.C. might get mad at me. Ben's Chili Bowl is, I don't like the food. I mean, it's not. But it's a diner, it's a, you know, diner style kind of food. Um, uh, and it has, it's, it's an important place that resonates because it, it's been around for a long time and delivers, you know, a kind of experience that different mm-hmm. from, you mm-hmm. know, the food. Uh, I mean, the half smoke is the half smoke and it's, it's, it's glorious in its way if you're willing to pay the price for it. But anyway. I used to, when I lived in D.C., every now and again, my friend Jacob and I used to drive, and for the life of me, I cannot remember what it was called. There was a soul food restaurant um, up beyond Howard that was like open, like I feel like, three days a week. And mm-hmm. it was like in someone's kitchen. I mean, you don't even know it was in someone's kitchen. I mean, sure. it was like... It was like it was a thing. I'm sure it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I don't even know how we found out about it, but it was like it was very, very much of the old DC. Oh, oh it, was, it was a vestige of um, segregated DC. Yeah, that's what right. It was. Yeah, yeah. Pre riots, pre riots, 1950s DC. It yep. was still hanging on. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, look, I want to circle back uh, to the French fries and what you and I can do to mm-hmm. to, to use our platforms. Your platform is a little bit bigger than mine. Mm-hmm. We use our platforms to get the beef tallow back in the French fries. It seems like it's achievable. It's there isn't an economic reason to not do it, right? I mean, you did the investigation. Is it now prohibitively expensive? No, shouldn't be. Uh, uh, for the simple reason that the it might be slightly more expensive to acquire to purchase uh, animal fats, Mm -hmm. but it's far uh, easier to, um, because they're stable, saturated fat is stable, and vegetable oils are unstable. So vegetable oils are a pain in the ass. They they turn into all kinds of weird compounds. They're a bitch to clean. They got on people's clothing. They missed in the air. I cannot tell you what a nightmare they've created for fast food places. These guys would be thrilled to go back to, to, saturated fat I think um, I don't think it's impossible one I got a funny email from a friend of mine uh, who's a business school professor at Penn who is friends with someone on the McDonald's board and he said I sent your podcast to those guys yeah I haven't taken you know see what so I don't know is it I don't think it's impossible I think what's going to happen is this though it's not going to come from McDonald's what's going to happen is one of the newer yep so I don't know what five guys or someone like that cooks their fries in. I don't five think guys cooks in peanut oil, which peanut is, oil. you know, which is like, I did, you know, yeah, I mean, someone like that's going to be the one to do it. And if they benchmark a newer quality fry, everyone else is going to have to follow. Well, I, I have this hope. I'm harboring a little bit of hope for McDonald's. I, you know, the, I wonder, I'm dubious this is going to happen for the following reason. Um, that I really think the day of that kind of fast food place is over. I think McDonald's is a kind of, it's a, it's a 70s, 80s notion of how to eat food. And I think it's slowly, it's going away. Like Chipotle is a stepping stone to this newer kind of stuff in exactly the same way that Starbucks was a, was a, was a stepping stone to third wave coffee or what have you. Right. I, you know, and I think that what, what's going to happen is that segment of the market is only going to grow. Sure. And it's going to grow at the expense of the old school. Um, so I don't, is, is McDonald's, do they have the wit to change or are they going to get into a defensive crouch? And I think they're going to get into a defensive crouch. Well, they're so big. It's, it's a very hard thing um, for them. You know, part of the hard sacrifice that they might encounter is they're going to have to get smaller. I think there's a play for McDonald's to double down on its heritage. 
Uh, and they've done some small sampling of this. Like they, they offered the Big Mac in three different sizes last summer. Um, but bringing back the OG French fries, that would really create the, a moment. So the, that is a great campaign for. I mean, I would do anything. I don't know what I don't know what our next move is, but I feel like <laughs> I would kill for that. I would return to McDonald's for that. That makes that's it. So look, on that note. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much for joining us here on House this of Cards. It was a delight. It was, Absolutely. It was, uh, let's bring back the OG fries. Let's bring back the OG fries. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Big, big thanks to Malcolm. Unbelievable conversation. We're bringing back the OG fries to McDonald's. We have food news coming up, but before we get there, let's have a quick chat from this friend of ours. My podcast friends, if you love cooking show marathons or you follow food accounts on social media, I do both of those things, you know the appeal of preparing an amazing meal, but you also know that those delicious creative meals take planning and effort. Make fine dining easy, my friends, and convenient with the meal kit delivery from Sun Basket. Sunbasket sends organic and non-GMO ingredients directly to your door. That means you can cook delicious, Instagram-worthy meals in about 30 minutes. All of Sunbasket's recipes are created by a James Beard award-winning chef and approved by nutritionists. It is like having a fancy restaurant in your own kitchen. Each meal comes with pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow directions, so even total rookies can do it. I, my own self, am somewhere between Master Chef and Total Rookie. And I absolutely love Sun Basket because they put everything in a single bag so that all the ingredients are there already measured out. I've made a wonderful Turkish dish, the lamb kofti, just last night. Everything came out perfect. I should have taken a picture. My friends, you can choose from paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian, and lean and clean options. Here's what you do. Go to sunbasket.com slash carbs today and get 50% off your first order. That's half off. Friends, sunbasket.com slash carbs for 50% off your first order. Sunbasket.com slash C-A-R-B-S. All right, podcast pals, as always, we are now joined by the managing editor at The Ringer and host of The Bachelor Party and Jam Session podcast, the one, the only, Miss Juliet Littman. Hello, what's up? Welcome back. Thank we you. missed you. Thank you. I missed you too. I really did. All right, we have two important things to cover before we jump into some food news here. Okay. I want to know, I have an under, over under, I should have uh, bet. Um, with people at the ringer when I was out there in LA. The over-under for the number of Juliets consumed while you were on vacation. <laughs> the number is six, six and a half Juliets. Wow, six and a half. Um, way under. I think I only had like two. <gasps> Whoa! I know, this is why. I was with my family, with my parents and okay. my brother. Sure. And we were on Cape Cod. And have you ever been have you ever been to Cape Cod? Many, many times. There's not a lot to do there, like in a great way. Like it's it's similar to Hawaii in that it's like you go to the beach, you eat, you could like do some like water activities, ride a bike, you just hang. Yep. You mostly hang. And it's so it's a hang vibe. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a place to go to hang. And I, anyone who knows me knows that my favorite thing to do is hang. So it works out really well. Um but we weren't really doing like a lot of like hardcore drinking and my family we just like my mom had bought wine and hard cider, and I was like, okay, okay. I can get down sure. with that. And yep. so that's what we had in the house. And then I don't know, it just it's just that's how how things went. And then um, on one of my favorite television shows, Ladies of London, they drink a lot of wine spritzers, which is wine and seltzer. Okay. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm just gonna live like a lady of London, and I mixed the two together and mixed it up. Um, and, and that's the that's that's the way it went. Yes, that was like kind of my because it was like kind of a home vibe. But then I was in New York, and when I was in New York, I had some had some drinks. So okay, good. So I didn't go without completely, but it was just sort of like a matter of circumstance. Plus, you know, vacation's a great time to like try out some new things. So I tried out some new, some new bevs. I love that. That's great. Thank you. Um, I don't. I would have. I I thought the number was going to be in the like near a dozen, but that's okay. I don't mind losing that. I, I understand. I don't know. I just feel like with, I just feel like my vodka vibes is not really well suited for my family. I'm definitely got it. I'm definitely the biggest drinker in my family, and they're certainly horrified by it. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to take it easy. 
All right. So the other important thing uh, while you're on vacation, Cape Cod and New York, two great places yes. to eat. Yes, Two fantastic are. places to eat. Was there one meal that stood out above all the others? Yes, there was. Um, oh. My last night in Wellfleet, which is where my parents go every summer, we went to this newish place called The Well, which is like the Cape version of like a pub gastro pub situation and the cape is like just supremely not cool in the best way possible like it doesn't have any hamptons like clubs or like places to be seen really like that's just not the vibe there so this yeah. was like this is like which is which i really like just to be clear you and me both yeah and so this was like kind of like a pub kind of thing but it was like the beach extremely low-key version of it and i had um shrimp and grits and Ooh. it was amazing it was like just incredibly good it was more of like um a stew than a straight up like um, grilled shrimp or fried shrimp with grits on the side. They came, it came like in a bowl and there was some kind of like light, like, like kind of like butter and tomato sauce on it. I'm guessing. Yes, of course. Right. And it was so freaking good. I, it was just delicious. I love grits and it, they, it was just really good. It's at the well. So if you're ever in Wellfleet, I recommend it. It was really good. We also, so- they also had um spring rolls on the menu, but I just want to say these were like, it was like the outside looked like a spring roll, but then inside was chicken and gouda cheese, and it was really good. <laughs> yeah, that does. That's not a spring roll. That's like a you know some some kind of wrap or something. It, has, yeah. it deserves a different name. Uh, <laughs> it's some kind of like uh, you know. It, it actually strikes me as being something more on the order of of like uh, the tightly rolled small oh, like chicken a fried. Yes, precisely the taquito. That sounds like more like a taquito. It was more like a taquito. It was really good. Gouda cheese, just kind of underused in in the restaurant oh, world. You, I can't get enough that smoky flavor. Now, I want to do a very quick uh, tangent. Go down the shrimp and grits hole. With yes, you, if I'd you, love to. If you will, if you will go there with me. Uh, you are not a person that has been to the to the South, spent considerable amounts of time in the South, right? No, but I have been to the Carolinas, Virginia, Louisiana. And, and have you sampled the shrimp and grits the way they do shrimp and grits down there? I think I've had it in South Carolina. And and what about New Orleans? Have you had shrimp and grits in New Orleans? No. When, last time I was in New Orleans, I had... Um, a debris sandwich. Have you ever had that? Oh, of course. That's it's just it was incredible. So, it was the, it was probably the tastiest meat I've ever had. Yeah. Well, you know, and 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 uh, the the Bon Appetit's um, most recent, you know, best new restaurants in America. The best new restaurant was a sandwich place f- down in New Orleans, oh. and I don't recall whether or not the debris was on there, but it, it makes all all kinds of sense. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it was delicious. Yeah. Anyway, okay. tell me more about the shrimp and grits. Well, there's the, there's a whole thing to it. Um, there are a, a couple different kind of variations. If you had it in South Carolina, you've you've had kind of the most authentic version, I would say. New Orleans also does um, a, a version, but the most important ingredient in shipping grits. Now, the the way they they delivered it to you sounds to me like the sort of traditional way of delivering, which is in a stew kind of way. Like you, you're supposed to have everything all together in a bowl, oh. and the most important ingredient is butter. Yeah, so they, 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 <laughs> it sounds like they captured it. Yeah, it was um, really good. It also, I think it was like uh, also like a little bit like a wine sauce. So it was like wine and butter. And great. it was it was sure. so good. I don't know. Shrimp and grits is pretty unassailable. Like when would you not want to have that? There you go. Unassailable shrimp and grits. That's that's the, the verdict right now. <laughs> it was great. I love Cape Cod. It's just a wonderful place. I, w- I recommend everyone going there if they get the chance. Yeah, that's right. At some point in life, bucket list, Cape yeah, Cod. lovely. So lovely. Let's talk about some news. Okay. Um, there's a really hot topic that I'm so excited to discuss with you because it's just absurd. Um, it was announced earlier this week that the uh, Atlanta Falcons' new Mercedes-Benz Stadium will be will feature a Chick-fil-A stand, like a, like a vent that will be one of the vendors. There'll be a stall. However, football is played on Sundays. And Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. So though there is a space for Chick-fil-A in the stadium, there will only be one home game, which it can be procured. And that is on their Thursday night game against the Saints on December 7th. Um, there's definitely like a weird, like the fact that you can only have it against the Saints, I think like will play into the Atlanta, New Orleans uh, rivalry. Oh, I love that. I, yes. I, I just feel like there's something there. But anyway, um, they're having Chick-fil-A, but you can't have it. And this is, to me, even crazier. 
This is from Darren Bell's ESPN story. A source said the digital signage in the Chick-fil-A stand will be flipped when the stand is closed and it will be used by stadium concessionaire Levy to sell other non-branded food and beverage items. So they don't even get the branding on Sundays. It's just gone. It's like Chick-fil-A is there every day but Sunday, the one day they play football. Right, which means it's there no days. No days. Uh, <laughs> for, all, for all intents and purposes, it's there no days. Yeah, I they have there's there's a couple college football games that will be there played on Saturdays. Yes. And it apparently there will be non Sunday soccer games played in this venue. But I guess my reaction is what's the point? Why why tease people? Also, um, if you're Chick-fil-A, it's extremely expensive to have this stand within the new stadium. Like really expensive. Uh, I, I can't even imagine how much. In fact, I don't even I don't even know where my estimate would begin. But like whatever the lease is, plus then having getting to have your stand, like it's expensive. So like this just seems like a waste of money to me. I don't get it. It, it, it has to be something about now Chick Fil A. I aren't the corporate headquarters in Atlanta? Yes, they are. So there's an affinity, a natural affinity there, and a, a reasonable expectation from the folks that arrive at that stadium um, that there would be a Chick-fil-A offering, but it's just very puzzling to have a a food offering from such a prominent Atlanta-based entity that's available mostly when the biggest events that are happening in that venue um, make the chicken unavailable. Yeah, it's so weird. And Football's also played on Mondays. Couldn't they have gotten a Monday night game or something to be in Atlanta? I don't get it. <laughs> well, it's a you know they know that they have a Thursday night game, right? Um, so I guess that's their one non-Sunday. But it's just very very puzzling. It does seem like ultimately a colossal waste. And I guess maybe part of the thing it's not quite a tease if you're flipping the signage. Sure. I'm interested in knowing. So it has to be the case that the ingredients. Uh, actually, I don't know enough about how food goes into stadiums and how quickly it gets served and all the rest of it. But I'm wondering if it's possible if I walked up there with a $100 bill and slipped it to a dude and said, come on, I know there's a chicken sandwich back there. <laughs> Drop it in the fryer. I'll wait I'll wait the two minutes. Get that sucker out. I don't even need the pickles. Just give me a chicken sandwich. Come on. Let's get to it. Um, there's also like one sentence, the, the, the last two sentences of this Darren Ravel article, I just need to read them because they're equally absurd. Zaxby's recently signed a five-year deal to be the official chicken of the Falcons, but fans can't get that either. Its products are not currently offered at the stadium. Like, what's going on here? What kind of what kind of bizarre sponsorships are the Falcons selling? I don't get it. <laughs> well, so Zaxby's, so you're you're in Atlanta, and a bus goes by, and it's a Zaxby's ad, and at the bottom of the ad it says Zaxby's is the official chicken of the Atlanta Falcons. Um, Okay, yeah. great. Like, Can I get it at a game? Right. And the answer is no. No, you can't. Also, like, is it, it does this just mean there'll be some um, Julio Jones advertisements for Zaxby's? Like, is that what they're really buying? I'm just very confused by this whole thing. Well, there is an enormous opportunity for a non-Chick-fil-A chicken purveyor in the Atlanta Falcon Stadium who's open to the idea of selling chicken on Sundays to jump right in that space and dominate. Absolutely. There's just a lot of inefficiencies here. It's time it's time to have like a, a new moneyball revolution for the chicken sales within the new Atlanta Falcon Stadium. Exactly. Uh, one other note before moving on from this, I think it's yes. weird that now the Saints and the Falcons stadiums naming rights both go to Mercedes-Benz. Very very bizarre. Uh, yeah. I look, I mean, you know, got to give it up to Mercedes. I guess so. I'm just really into that rivalry because I, I didn't really know about it until a few years ago. So now I'm very intrigued by it. Well, we're going to have Micah Peters on at some point oh, great. Um, to tell us, uh, give us some some download on the uh, um, rivalry. Um, and we'll put it in terms of, of the only way that I understand the world, which is through food. through food and through my belly. I was with Micah Peters when I had my debris sandwich, I just want to say. It was NBA. Oh, my God. NBA so All-Star Weekend. Was, it was the most authentic debris you could have. Yes, absolutely. It was amazing. All right. Good okay, times. next. We're leaving America, and we're going to France. Um, there's some major innovation happening on a island off the coast of France called Ile de Rue. I think that's how you say it. Great and job. Thank you. Thank you very much. I only took French for like 10 years. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't like them, but many people love fresh oysters. They're a delicacy. They're expensive. And at this island, they have a lot of them. So 
there's a there's a store that uh, sells them. And the store has like weird hours. So it was often closed. People would show up. So they decided to outfit a vending machine so that they could serve oysters 24 hours, seven days a week. And there's a vending machine that sells oysters if you're ever on this island. Um, it's it's pretty unbelievable. I, I watched a video of the uh, of the machine itself. And basically, it kind of looks like not quite a vending machine, but more like a, a, a wall of um, safety deposit boxes. And you put, yeah. in, you put in your money and it spits out like a tray of oysters for you. And they're always fresh. That's like it's a custom uh, vending machine. They had like a company come in and outfit it properly, and they're like as fresh as fresh as can be. They're not even shucked. That's part of the way they do it. So you also have to know how to shuck an oyster, which if you've watched Top Chef, you know is extremely difficult, and also probably leads to bloody fingers. Um, but this is like kind of crazy. A dozen oysters are only eight dollars. So that's unbelievable. And I will tell you, when I saw the story, saw the headline, started reading. I had the reaction. This is my reaction. No, 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 no. And then as I got through the story and kind of considered the uh, plight of the shopkeeper and really considered the physical location of where um, the shop is and then where the, where the stand is, I, so I'm a person that loves oysters. And I'll eat them uh, anywhere at any time. And it is the case these days. There's no longer a rule of thumb in terms of when fresh oysters will be available. Mm -hmm. You can kind of get oysters year-round. Now fresh oysters year-round because um, the country's appetite for the oysters has really uh, awakened. And there are a lot of purveyors of oysters up and down the East Coast and the West Coast that can generate um, very good oysters throughout the year. It's become a real um, cottage industry, a real science, and it's it's very intriguing. You can easily go down the oyster hole. Um, and I have a little bit. Uh, well, the thing that... Well, go ahead. Wellfleet's known for its oysters, by the way. Yeah, of course. The Wellfleets are delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry that you didn't have any because you don't like oysters. I know. It's just not my thing, but I understand. They're, they're good. But doing the math, as I kind of considered um, this story and the stand and the, and the machine... I I it has to be the case that when I eat oysters they're at at the very best like a a day fresh or or two days fresh you know they came from somewhere else they're always coming from somewhere else when I'm eating oysters here in Washington or occasionally up in in New York um I, I guess maybe they could uh, in occasionally in New York come out from out on Long Island so it could be kind of same day but this particular opportunity in France, this, this, uh, the way this place is sited with the machine there, those are everyday fresh oysters. Right. Every day. So I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I know. I'm 100% in. Also, I feel like if, if you lived there, I mean, I, I think they, you know, it's like a, it's like they're like fishmongers. So the people buy them and like make them at home. So this is great. You just stop by the machine, pick up some oysters, you prepare them however you want, and then you've got a great meal. I think the same – this could really lead to some things. Like I would buy an oyster from a machine sure. if I knew that there – I mean uh, a lobster, I meant to say. What did I say? You did said I say oyster. oyster? I, meant, I meant lobster, but I, I would also buy – if I was in Wellfleet and there was a purveyor <laughs> of oysters that had a machine adjacent to their shop and it was 10 o'clock at night and I needed to get my shuck on, I would do that. <laughs> I would go there, get my – especially at $8. That's an incredible price point. It's um, incredible. You know, I, for a dozen, it's less than a dollar an oyster. That's amazing. Right, right. I would do it for twelve bucks, and you know, you get your little half bottle of uh, your split of of the champagne, which is a yeah. perfect accompaniment, uh, or another crisp white, and and have knock out a dozen. Why not? I think I would go as high as twenty. This is a, for for an, a dozen oysters. Fish is yeah. so expensive in America. Well, that's this this is the thing. Like I would also do. Lobster. I would do virtually all shellfish, honestly. Yeah. Clams. I don't see why it wouldn't work for clams. Oh, it'd be great for clams. Yeah, definitely. And it seems like the machine could have those offerings. Would you like a dozen oysters? Would you like uh, a one and a half pound lobster? Yeah. Or would you like a dozen clams? Yeah. I- I'm in. This or that's like, they're innovating get, over there. That's right. Steam us. Love Steam it. us. Is, they call <laughs> them up there on the Cape, right? Anyway, great job, France. Uh, yeah, great job, France. Uh, another story from France this week. Yeah, Our less li- than not as great a job. This is this is um, a little bit uh, morbid. Well, actually, quite a bit morbid. There were two men enjoying a summer dinner of roasted beef and canned beans in the town of 
Autant du Perche, the French. It's a French village, and mm. <laughs> really flexing my French uh, skills. You really are. It's awesome to the extent that I have them. Um, and there was two friends: a man named Olivier and a man named Lucien. And they, they like a bunch of their neighbors walked by and saw them. They thought they were sleeping like at their at the dinner table after having like drunk drank a ton. Um, and so like one was like sitting up at the table and the other was lying on his back. <laughs> like next to the table. It's not funny. I'm sorry. I laughed. And their neighbors assumed they were just sleeping, like sleeping it off because they'd had like a real bender at home, which is a great way to have a bender, by the way. Love love a night of drinking in. And then this woman went over to them, like one of the neighbors, to check on them and realize that neither had moved. And she tried to wake them and couldn't and then found out that they had died. So these two like friends just were having a night of revelry together. And uh, it turned very bad they they passed away and so people were really confused about what happened maybe they thought it was like murder or some kind of like food poisoning or they just had no idea until the um the autopsies came in and it turned out that one of them had more than 2.4 grams per liter of alcohol which is like a lot and a lot in his blood that was his blood alcohol level and it turned out he had choked trying to swallow a 1.5 ounce piece of beef rib without chewing it properly reportedly due to having several teeth missing information via the guardian uh and Mm. then doctors believe the other man the younger one who had a genetic heart condition had a heart attack after seeing his friend die so one died from choking and the other died from the horror of witnessing that and this is like a truly like bizarre and sad story that I could see like start like in like some kind of like hijinks comedy from from the continent um and it's just really weird it's really like this is this is food this is food news of the highest order so uh i I hope nobody takes this the wrong way i I found this story to be very life affirming you did and, and, I did in in more than one way. <laughs> Please so in explain the first that place, to me. How wonderful! In, in the in the first place, I absolutely adore the um, narrative that folks who walked by them and saw them passed out at the table were not immediately moved to, into action because their conclusion was they were sleeping off the effects of the alcohol. So. This is a 38-year-old dude and a 69-year-old dude, and they're dear friends, and they get together once a week or so, and they get after it. They go to dinner and yeah. get after it, and they get after it in, in such a way that it, it must be sort of notorious enough that when, when passersby come and see them, it wouldn't be uh, extraordinary that they, w- they were passed out. Yes. So, so uh, great job by these two great pals, right? Yeah, two they, guys who love to eat and and love each other's company and love to drink. So in the very first place, that part of it um, is was was kind of a, a tickling aspect to me. I enjoyed that. The second aspect of this, if I'm going to have any say whatsoever in how I, I jump off this mortal coil, it it is. It is. I, I hope that it happens in in my belly. Now I don't. You know I don't want to choke to death. That seems like a pretty, you know, the panic that sets in there. Um, I'd like to avoid that if, mm-hmm. if at all possible. Sure, of course. But you know the circumstances here are two great friends enjoying what what clearly is something that um, has been very near and dear to them. Enjoying each other's company. Enjoying too much food. Too much alcohol. And they they sort of died in each other's arms, as it were, not quite literally in each other's arms, but involved in in one of the things that makes life worth living, which is the communal experience of of eating and drinking and the company that you're enjoying with a with a dear friend and a lot of alcohol. So I don't know that it was necessarily super painful for either one of them. So this is the spin that I'm putting on all of this. That's it, so positive, it House. I, in that way, know, a touching story to me. That's why this is House of Carbs, because you just <laughs> are so positive. I really love it. I was like, this is a little bit of a weird story, but you've made me feel great about it. I'm so glad we discussed it. And we're celebrating their lives, really. Yeah, I, d- I didn't want either of them to die, right? I wish yeah. they were still alive and still having these great regular meals um, together. They were like father and son, according to the story. Yeah. And this is clearly a very dumb way to die. <laughs> but 
of of all the ways to go, like I'm with my one of my very best friends, perhaps my best friend, and we're doing the thing that one of the things that makes us great friends, and we died in each other's company, enjoying ourselves that way. You're so right. That's a great way of putting it. Um. Well, that's all the news I have for you, House. It's been delightful. We've done it. Yeah, it's been delightful. I'll, Thank I'll, you. It's good, good to have you back. Of course. I'll talk to you next week. I can't wait. All right, my podcast peoples. Thank you so much once again for the listen to House of Cards, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Please continue the outstanding belly sourcing. Make sure to give us a review on iTunes. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We shall be back next week with another episode. But until then, let's stay hungry out there.